0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Uh, Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Finn Brunton, who teaches science and technology studies at UC Davis. And as I was saying, you used to be in a role where you were teaching media, culture, and communications, which sound very different, but in fact have huge overlaps. And you're also the author of this book, Digital Cash, the unknown history of the anarchists, utopians, and technologists who created cryptocurrencies. And before that, you wrote a book on spam, called Spam: A Shadow History of the Internet. Welcome, Finn. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what I liked about this book, this recent book, is that you know, I teach a course on cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and I've been doing that for a couple of years. And you know, one of the reasons why I was attracted to teaching this topic is because it lies at the intersection of a lot of my interests. I'm interested in financial innovation, I'm interested in databases, and I'm interested in kind of theory of the firm and contracting. But there's a whole nother thread, which I probably spent a lot of time talking about in the class, which is this whole idea of, you know, social constructs and stories and narratives and how, you know, money is in many ways, it's a work of fiction, it's a work of art. And so that's why, I, th- you know, to circle back to this idea that you used to be teaching, you know, media and culture, and now you're teaching science and technology. But, you know, this topic kind of sits at the intersection of both of those So did you get launched into the study of the origins of cryptocurrencies, you know, primarily from the cultural angle or more kind of the technological angle, or is it D, all of the above? (laughs) That's a great question. And I
0: stumbled into it for a really concrete, specific reason at first, um, which is that I was wrapping up my book on spam. And one of the things about spam that I think is not kind of widely understood is that the real weak point for spammers is money, specifically banking. We tend to think about spam as like, how would you fight it? Well, you'd have to like develop much better email filters. And obviously that's really important. But the real choke point for a lot of spamming operations is how do you... You've tricked someone, someone's grandma has been tricked into, you know, getting an iTunes gift card or sending you like their debit information front and back. Like, how do you cash out that stolen data into real money that you can use, especially if, as is usually the case, you're operating overseas from, let's say, the United States, right? The U.S. is the target. You're like a teenager in Macedonia. Like, how do you turn what you've stolen into something you could actually use to like buy a motorcycle? So... The problem that the spammers had was they had to work with these really, I mean, really shady banks. You know, these like, I was finding these banks that were being run through like the, you know, Cayman Islands or like Azerbaijan, and they were all doing this one specific kind of card, not present transaction between two countries and this really, so the reason why I say that is that as I was wrapping up the book with a kind of an eye to what are the financial tools these guys are having to use, I first started to see um, spammers sending people email that was like, hey, you know what? Don't send me your credit card. But what would really be great for this investment opportunity I'm offering you was if you could buy this online currency and then like, make that available to me. And at the same time, like, literally as I was writing the last pages of the spam book, I saw my first ransomware attack screen that had a Bitcoin wallet connected to it you know, that was like, you know, you've downloaded malware, the vector for malware is spam. And now if you're going to get any of your files back, you have to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and send it to this wallet. Um, And it also included something which became a real hallmark for my project, which was along with the threat, right? We're going to delete all your stuff and you'll never get it back, right? Um, Along with the threat, there was then this like helpful explainer about what Bitcoin was and how you could use it to like, you know, here's how to set up a wallet. Here's how to get on the blockchain. Here's how to do X and Y and Z. So it was just this moment of suddenly being like, there's something really interesting here. And I don't think it's a sequel to the spam book. It's like, this is like a a new kind of technology, right? Like banking is a really fundamental human technology, right? Like systems of debt and credit are really primeval social techniques that we have. This is something that seems new and different, and it is being adopted by this really bizarre community of like online spammers and ransomware guys. So I saw that and just instantly knew like there's juice in this somewhere. And this was also very early on, right? The spammers were extremely early adopters of this stuff. Um, so I, I saw that and just felt like there is, there is something here that, to your point, speaks both to a new technology with some really interesting implications, but also to a new, uh, a new vision of the future right? A new narrative, a new story. And that's the other big thread, obviously, in the book. And and for me, with crypto as a whole, is that it's a really good example of how to get certain kinds of technologies off the ground, you can't just like build the tech. You have to tell people about the future in which the tech is going to do something of value for them, right? And that kind of storytelling, that media work is, is for me, where the, the rubber really meets the road of these kinds of new technological ideas. And I saw both of them in crypto.
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole crypto movement, if we could call it that, I mean, I'm always wondering, how will historians look at this a couple hundred years? Years from now, I mean, obviously the technology of money will certainly uh, evolve, but I think the whole kind of crypto movement will be viewed almost—it's kind of like a, a millenarian movement. <laughs> it's a group of people who have a vision of the future. Now, obviously, there's just a bunch of people who are just playing around and trying to get some get money quick kind of things—the dot-com boom or anything else. But the, at the core, there are these folks who have this libertarian vision, right? Of removing themselves from the state in some way. And of course, the problem with any kind of, quote, anarchistic movement is that they don't really have a good answer for how to deal with crime and how to deal with kind of bad actors. Do you think that this movement is reflective of a long-term strand in American history? We've always had these folks that are very... Suspicious of government. You mentioned like the Gadsden flag, right? You know, and I think you went to one of these events in like New Hampshire and stuff where people were talking about all the different ways they could outsmart the government and so forth. How essential is that viewpoint to the origins of this movement?
0: I I think it's fundamental. It's foundational. Like, I mean, my, my core argument in the book is that there's, there's essentially four, Separate but pretty closely related kind of ideologies, ideological strains that that thread together to make the history of cryptocurrency, and we can go through all of those at some at some point if if you'd like. But the 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 largest one is. Uh, American libertarianism, and I I, I want to specify that not just to say you know that that's just to say that movement, but for anyone who knows American libertarianism, it's like well which one are you talking about? Because there's you know the joke that I heard a lot when I would hang out at these libertarian enclave events was that if you get you know n libertarians in a room, there's going to be n plus one definitions of what they think libertarianism is. You know, so I say that because the one of the really interesting things about looking at crypto is that it's a a family of technologies which has to negotiate all these different ideas about what money is and about what the goal should be and, and so on. And that leads to some of the sort of inconsistencies that we see, I think, in, in you know, the clashes over how crypto should work, right? Like, is the, is the number one most important thing that it is uh, scarce and, like, def- is the most important thing that it's like gold? Or is the most important thing that it's ultra-private, ultra-private, ultra-secret, un is the most important thing that we should be able to casually transact it for small activities? Or should it be like some kind of collateral that lets you step outside of how the state functions? I I say all of that to say that all of these different agendas for what the technology should do represent different threads in libertarian ideological ideas about what money should be and how society should, should operate. So yeah, so that's part of what makes it so fascinating is that it's this you know, uh, very new technology, right? I mean, parts of it are are quite old in tech terms, right? They go back to like the 90s, 80s, in some cases, even the 70s. But um, like I think the oldest citation in Nakamoto's original Bitcoin papers from like 1955. But the roots of it, of this Most of it is very new and the roots of it go very old in in American culture. I mean, one of my favorite uh, sort of threads in this whole story was how many people who were tied into the history of the development of crypto had actually cut their teeth as people who created something that not a lot of people have ever heard of, which was digital gold currencies, DGCs. In the 1990s, these were not just like the first, they were actually kind of the best for a long time, right? Like they beat PayPal. They were earlier than PayPal. They were in many cases, you know, better for various values than PayPal. Like they they pioneered all this stuff, microtransactions, like super early sort of smartphones back when they were
1: personal digital assistant transactions. They were doing this huge volume. And these were based on gold, right? I mean, during the seventies in particular, right? With the rise of inflation, I mean, there were a lot of, people on the political fringes, maybe not even on the fringes, who were talking about going back to the gold standard, right? And people were, you know, minting gold. <laughs> and, you know, I think that one of these folks was actually appointed to the Fed board by Donald Trump, right? Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think it was Judy Shelton. Wasn't she? She was like a gold bug, right? Back in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, gold is physical. and But the minute you try to go and spend it, you realize how awkward it is. I mean, Even like today, the minute you try to spend Bitcoin, you realize how awkward it is. And so you immediately gravitate towards a wallet. And so these e-gold initiatives were essentially giving people the ability to transact based on gold without having to lug around the gold right yeah yeah exactly exactly and and you're absolutely right like a lot of
0: these people were folks whose, you know philosophically but like literally biographically their roots went back to like 70s you know gold standard stuff and then even deeper right like one of the key digital gold currency guys was uh I hesitate to use the word radicalized, but he was pretty radical. But he was like reading, like, you know, doctoral theses by students of, you know, Friedrich Hayek about the importance of creating like private precious metal backed banks from the 1930s. What they all had in common, though, was, was exactly what you described, right? They, they recognized that, like, we ideologically, economically, think that the precious metal standards are are the only way for a currency to be reliable in the long term and provide all these various benefits that you can't get out of central bank currencies. So we're going to create that. But we also recognize that the biggest hurdle is the physical problem, right? So we are going to create these online platforms so far ahead of their time, right? Like the web barely existed, but they were going to create these online platforms where they would have, you know, pallets of gold and silver in, you know, Idaho and Dubai and London, and then you could own a portion of those. On this online platform, and then you and I could actually do these transactions. Where I would say, you know, hey, I want to pay you for consulting services. Um, set up an account on this site, and I will uh, transfer three grains of this gold bar to you. And you know, blah blah blah. Like people could sell in and out of those. They could cash them out. They tended to hang on to them for you know fairly obvious reasons. But that model. I think, was one of the ways that we can see the kind of heritage of unusual heterodox financial ideology in cryptocurrency. Because the biggest weak point with DGCs was just as you might imagine that they were so centralized, right? They're so physical. So like the feds could and did show up and like seize all of the assets. Because, of course, the other problem with creating a uh, anonymous online payments platform that uses precious metal is that it gets used a lot for laundering money and for scammers to like cash out projects, like all these various, you know, problems that you could picture arising.
1: Drug dealers use them a lot. But it also meant that like you also have to worry about the person, the custodian of the gold absconding with it, right? I mean, you see this all the time with wine futures. You know, people will buy and sell wine futures. And then when they finally show up to get their wine, they realize that the wine shop has, you know, run off with all all the money in the wine, right? Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. But no, that is exactly right. Like the how can you trust that that is, I mean, in in many cases, you could they they established these like very hands-on kind of trust things where they would literally have like a security camera, a webcam pointed full time at like the pallets of, you know, rounds of silver or whatever in the warehouse and Kurtoline. And you could go and like look at it and (laughs) confirm that it was still there. And you could take tours and all these other things. And of course they also had, I mean it has to be said with this particular community, they had the um the inherent trustworthiness of the fact that if most of your customers are either drug dealers or militant libertarians and they're heavily armed and they are really willing to take the law into their own hands. However, nonetheless, like either people could abscond with the goods or the feds would come and impound the goods and then you would sort of have no recourse. And so that set up this argument within the DGC community of how do we create a version of this that is like unseizable? Right. How do we create a version of this that that doesn't have that single point of failure of a bunch of ingots sitting in a safety deposit box somewhere? And one of the outcomes of that was, well, if we could have a way to make something purely cryptographic that existed just on the internet, you know, and like all these instances on different people's computers, then it would be safe. And you can start to like hear the early genesis of the blockchain in that. But it is, its its roots are, are um, libertarian in exactly that way.
1: Well it's interesting that it's these kind of anarchists that were promoting the development of digital money because there's also this parallel strand that I know you've talked about where the digital money was seen as a way for governments to control the spending, right? And so, you know, in Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale that, you know, there's a story about this, but there were actually some real life proposals before Congress to do this sort of thing. So could you talk a bit about that concern and you know why it was actually sort of a legitimate concern of these libertarians to worry about the elimination of hard currency? Yeah, the
0: trick for me is to you know it it varies depending on the audience, but to kind of disentangle to recognize that like you know there's like hardcore gold standard people and there's people who are concerned about privacy, and they often ended up as bedfellows. You know, they had a shared interest in the way the technology could work. But I think we can really disentangle those concerns from each other. And the reason why that's important is just just as you said now, to even if you, like, I I personally am not a hardcore gold standard guy. I'm like a precious metals, you know, libertarian dude. But I, I want, so I want to make it clear to people that there were concerns about what was going to happen with digital money um, that were concerns that even if you have no interest whatsoever in the gold standard, you should really take seriously. And so the, the core of those concerns was that computer scientists and network engineers in the 1970s They, you know, they knew what was coming, right? Like they could see that like we are heading towards a future where computers are going some form of computing is going to be everywhere. It might be, you know, the home terminal, it might be the whatever, but we are going to start using computing systems as mediators for more and more of the transactions that make up our lives. And they also saw the implicit threat in that, right? Like if this is, this is pre-modern like modern cryptography in the sense that we're used to it, right? Now we may have a kind of, you know, reasonable sense that like, okay, right, like this message is end-to-end encrypted, but this one is not. You know, when I see the HTTPS in the URL, then I can be reasonably sure that this is secure. There was none of that, right? Like <laughs> none of those systems were in place. So what a lot of these early engineers could foresee is if we don't develop systems to secure this stuff and make it private now, then the state and or major corporations and or partnerships between them are going to start managing our transaction systems for us. And that is going to enable a potential level of oversight and control that would have been impossible under any other circumstance, right? Like one of the stories I tell in the book is about Paul Armour, this computer scientist who got tasked with figuring out what the Soviet Union at the time was planning on for their next generation internal surveillance systems so that the you know, State Department could kind of game out what that would be like. And what they all settled on, Paul Armour and his crew, was, uh, well, they would use an electronic funds transfer system, which is just a fancy way of saying, like, you know, the point of sales tools that you and I use every day, right? Would we go and tap the iPad, <laughs> you know, like get our cup of coffee, um, and the reason they would use that is because oversight over everyone's transactions is this unbelievably unprecedented level of political power. You get geotagged data about where someone is exactly when they do something, sure. But that's just level one. You also get data about what they're buying. And if you have information like that, if you think about money as something that exists only on the network, then you could start to do stuff like, um, say, for this person, This specific individual, you, with your specific debit card, your money will not work for certain kinds of purchases because the state doesn't want you to travel, you
1: know? Like food stamps, right? So we say, okay, you know, you can buy... Lima beans, but we don't want you buying Coca-Cola, right? And so your food stamp card isn't going to work. Yes,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's like a real world example of like how this is, yeah, no rotisserie chicken for you, you know, no prepared food. You can only get like certain categories of things. So yeah, as, as you mentioned, like these are people who are like testifying before Congress being like, this, is, this, is, this will enable forms of social control and coercion that are just like un, unimaginable. So the way that they... They were already then like kind of thinking like, how do we avert this? How do
1: we prevent this? And to be fair, I mean, if you think about what's happening in China right now, I mean, it's almost impossible to transact if you don't transact with Alipay and WeChat Pay. And all the data is available to the Chinese government. And it would be very easy for them to apply a social credit score to your spending ability and differentially tax you, differentially siphon off your income yeah. Change what you can and cannot spend your money on, immediately identify who bought contraband and so forth. Yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like we can see real world versions of this starting to play out, right? Like we the sort of we we saw kind of preludes to this in some of like the state managed economies of the 70s and, and 1980s, in that you could do things like say, like for you to get a car, you know, you're going to need to like do the following favors for the Stasi. Like you're going to have to like play ball. And just imagine that, as you say, like expanded into every area of life. And we can definitely see like versions of that in China right now. We can see also versions of that to take a slightly different tact. Like one of the kind of other ways to think about this threat is when we think about the internal payment tools, the kind of money that is presented to us by companies, right? Where it's like, oh, I get points on my card. But I can't spend those points during these blackout days. I can't transact the points with somebody else. I can only spend the points at selected retailers, right? Like, imagine that applying to, like, all the money that you have. That was part of what they were afraid
1: of. And we can see that they were right to have been afraid of it. Of course, all of the decentralized apps that are proposed have the same characteristics, (laughs) right? Yes, yes. You know, you can only use your peer-to-peer car rental money for peer to peer car rentals and so forth. Yeah. Now of course, I mean, this is not universally bad. I mean, this is what allows us to impose sanctions on, you know, the Russians, this is what allows us to identify drug dealers and seize their money and so forth. And it even is what allows us to go after most of the people that engage in ransomware attacks because, you know, most of them sooner or later kind of put their money into some kind of entity that has seizeable assets like some kind of wallet right so this could be good or bad depending on what the government's trying to do and how legitimate it is right? yeah
0: totally i mean this is why one of for me one of the sort of heroes that emerges even if he's a slightly tragic hero in um in in the book in my research was this guy david chown chown uh was this uh, programmer software developer entrepreneur who was running this company in, uh, you know, started in America, running this company in the Netherlands in the 1990s, who was trying to develop this um, product called, that he called DigiCash. And DigiCash was an early solution to this problem of privacy that was also going to try to address just what you've described, right? This kind of the, the threat of. You know, all the threats that you just enumerated. So the notion with DigiCash, which I want to spell out a little bit because I think it it really has a lot to still show us today about how different things could have been, was that um, he and his team and his colleagues, they developed this protocol where you or I could go to our bank. We could physically go to an ATM, we put our card into the ATM, and we say, uh, put 100 bucks onto this card. The money that is put onto that card is DigiCash. By which I mean, it is these like uh, cryptographically signed tokens from the bank. So when I take that card and I go and spend it at the coffee shop, when I put that into their point of sale device, it's not connecting to the bank's computer like a debit card. It's not confirming my identity. It doesn't need to do any of that. What's on the card is as if I handed them a $20 bill, right? And they debit the amount onto onto their device. And that amount is not connected with me in any way. But to speak to your point, it is connected with them, right? Like once the merchant has it on their card, when they go to the bank to deposit it, it's going to you know, be coming out of this coffee shop's. It's going to go into the coffee shop's account. It's going to be like coming out of the card connect and so on. So I say that because I think that was such an elegant solution, right? In the sense that like the money can travel anonymously. There's no way to connect those transactions together, but if you're going to bring it back into the bank, then it's back into a system where it can still be under some level of supervision and can still, you know, have like know your like you know KYC requirements and can still have like you know ways that we can identify. Like it's not it's no good for blackmail. It's no good for money laundering. It's no good for ransomware. It's a system that wouldn't work for any of those things. And Chalm's Project was so far-sighted in terms of how I, I talked about it as a as a physical thing on a card, like analogous to cash, but of course you could also use this for online transactions. And it was so far-sighted in that idea of like make it so I can transact with a merchant on the internet. I can donate money. I can subscribe to things without producing any transactional record that connects it back to me. But it's still no good for, you know, illicit stuff, frauds, ripoff kinds of things. And I really wonder about the future we could have had where the core internet financial model was not advertising, (laughs) but was instead these like, you know, anonymous privacy preserving microtransactions.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, there's now a bunch of cities that are passing laws mandating that merchants take cash. And I think this is driven primarily by concerns about the unbanked, but you know, it could also be to protect some elements of privacy. And, and there's a little bit in the book about how we kind of deal with the potential for counterfeiting in paper money. And you know, we have all these like threads and little holograms and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes when people, merchants are taking a large bill, they'll put it under this little microscope and so forth. So in order for you to have that kind of authentication in the digital world, right, you need to have all this cryptographic technology, right? Now, I remember when Bitcoin first came onto the scene, most of the courses emphasize the cryptography elements, right? And a lot of the, my colleagues in engineering school who were cryptographers—they were the ones that got into this. So, you know, how did this whole s- sort of technology of cryptography uh, evolve, and what was the the motivation there? Yeah, I mean, that's—it's a huge story because
0: you know, crypto is for me, and I'm, I'm biased here, but I think crypto is really one of the the most amazing like mathematical computer science developments in like the second half of the 20th century. It's just so, so remarkable. But rather than kind of telling the full sweep of that story, which could, you know, you could, you could spend your whole career like studying the history of crypto, I want to sort of capture the, the really like the functional problem that they were trying to address because it also feeds into what cryptocurrency then
1: becomes. It also ties into your spam story, right? Because, you know, I remember it was probably in the late 90s when uh, Bill Gates came out and said, you know, what we need is we need a postage stamp for emails. Right. And everybody's like, wait, what? Like that seems crazy. But, you know, he was saying that if we can have if there's just a tiny little fee associated with this gets to the proof of work story, but if we had some tiny little fee, this would serve the role of reducing, you know, the spam. So part of the story for eliminating unwanted stuff is authentication and then part of it is about you know putting a tax on things yeah right
0: yeah totally that's actually that's a really good place to start to kind of explain the the ways that people started trying to figure out how to use cryptography right because like there's a wonderful detail in i think it's andy greenberg's book about WikiLeaks, which also includes some wonderful stuff in it about the history of crypto cryptography specifically um where he says he quotes someone he interviews as saying it's as though they had found like a crashed ufo You know, like cryptographers just had all these like amazing counterintuitive tools that you were like, this is like, where the hell did this? I mean, you know, we know where it came from. We know how the math works, but you could still imagine just kind of looking at it as like this alien technology. Where did this come from? You're telling me that you have a lock, which everyone can study, but which only a single corresponding key can unlock. And the key and the lock are actually somehow related such that like the key can then authenticate something in such a way that only the lock can like, you know, it's like, it's really remarkable and really bizarre. And one of the most bizarre things that comes out of the sort of the study of cryptography is what are called hashing problems. So I'll, I'll explain this very, very briefly, and then and it ties us back to Bill Gates. It ties us back to the postage stamp, and then ultimately to um, cryptocurrency. But hashing problems actually have this uh, really interesting history that has to do with the hard drive. So when you think about early hard drives, you know we're all sort of familiar with what they look like, right? It's like a it's like big platter with this head moving around on it. And one of the problems when you start to think about it is, okay, so my computer is storing information on this hard drive. How does it know where to find the information? Like physically, where does the head move to like look for it? And you know, the same problems applied to like these early tape drives, which are like reel to reel tape. It's like, where is the data? It's scraping back and forth. So you can see how this like, if you don't figure this out, the time it takes to get something is going to be so onerous. You, know, you can just imagine hitting like Control S on a Word document and then just grinding, trying to like, where is, where's the original version? What do I update, etc. So one of the sort of challenges that they faced one of the solutions that these engineers came up with for how to solve it was well what if we had uh, a set of algorithms that could take the data and then could like produce like a little summary of it a little digest but the best way to do that is not to come up with what we would think of as a summary right you know the first sentence or whatever but to instead have some set of algorithms that slices and dices the data and spits out some tiny string of just like letters and numbers, but they correspond to that specific file in some really precise way. So the reason why this is kind of miraculous is that the algorithms that they develop for doing this are so effective. They're called hashing algorithms, literally in the sense that if you like order hash in a restaurant, right? It's like the chopped up version of something. It's all mixed together. So hashing algorithms are shockingly effective. So I can make a hash. I can generate a hash from Moby Dick, right? And it's going to be some string of letters and numbers. Now, if in I go into Moby Dick and on page like 237, I change a single letter in a sentence, the hash will be different that I produce from that changed version. So you can start to do things, and we actually do this often without thinking about it. The machines handle it for us, where you can like, download a file, and with that file, you can download the hash that corresponds to what the file should be. And if the hashes do not match, then your computer can be like, something's wrong. You know, this file you've downloaded, something has been changed in it. Something is different. Something's corrupted. It's been hacked, whatever. So the other thing that you can do, many, one of the many other things that you can do with hashes that's really cool is that you can say, what if we have a class of hashes where I can give you a file, and then I can say I want you to manipulate this file in various ways until you arrive at this hash that I've provided for you. So this you can imagine, right? This is this can be a, a nightmare. This can be like a I like to think of it as like a, a Borges story. Like so I give you a copy of Moby Dick, and I'm like, and here's a hash that corresponds to a version of Moby Dick that is slightly different than the one I've given you. So you just need to start going through and changing things until you figure out the right version to correspond to that hash. So people like kind of found this tool and then were like, what do we do with this? Aside from like making, you know, a nightmare volume of labor for a computer to do. Like, what is this useful for? And that's where people started to try to apply it to the problem of spam. Right. So you can now start to think like, okay, well, if I have an email. I have an email that has like the text of the email, the subject line. It has the timestamp when it was sent. It has the from and to addresses. It has all these things that make it into like a unique file. And then with that email, I can give you a hash. And I can say, you need to change this email in some way so that it corresponds to this hash, right? Because it's not going to match up with the original. You've got to like do some stuff with it. And then I can make that hash that I demand of you Arbitrarily difficult, so I can say I want you to take this email and then turn it into a hash that has a zero in it, or two zeros, or five zeros, all one after another, and each of those is going to escalate the difficulty of how many times you have to go into the email and be like, "Okay, what if I do this to it? What if I do that to it? What if I do the following things to it?" This is not exactly how it works, but it's a good analogy for it. So the reason why this is useful is that you can then say to spammers. Um, well, my email inbox now has a rule, which is that when I receive a message from you, it has to have a little hash attached to it that has the following properties. Now, if we make the hash not too hard, then you and I will never notice that this is happening, right? We'll send emails back and forth. Our computers will do a little work to, for me to send an email to you. I have to do a little bit of work to make it match up to some weird arbitrary hash and then send it your way. It takes a, you know a microsecond. But if you're sending out a million emails a day, then suddenly your computer is like grinding to a halt trying to do all of this labor, right? It's going to rate limit what you're doing. It's going to throttle your activities. So people propose this as, yeah, a kind of postage system um, where you have to like do this little bit of additional computational work that won't get in the way of normal emailing activity, but will get in the way of high volume activity. Now, lots of different people develop versions of this idea, but the one who's really pertinent to our story is this guy named Adam Back. He comes up with this concept. He calls it hash cash because it's like, you know, the work can be thought of as like a tiny bit of money, that you have to It's a little bit of electricity A little bit of time for your computer only becomes a problem if you're doing stuff in huge volumes. And then having developed this, and this is one of my favorite things about the history of tech, is that people never, like almost never come up with like the single visionary idea. They always come up with something and they're like, what is this good for? (laughs) What can we do with this? He starts like posting these papers where he is presenting this idea. He walks you through how it works. And at the end, he has a bunch of like, what else could this be good for? And one of the things that he has in his, he's got these like bullet points, and one of them is it could be the minting mechanism for a digital banking system. It could be some way for us to produce a kind of metered, measurable level of difficulty, of work that a computer has to do to like generate new money in some as yet unspecified digital way. So Sorry, that was a huge kind of work way of working our way around. But that's the twisted path by which one of the main threads of cryptography ends up in cryptocurrency.
1: Now, you tell us other story about how some of the cryptographic tools like RSA were almost like government secrets. And the people who were publicizing them were kind of like the people who now put the you know recipe for a nuclear bomb up on the internet, right? And People were tattooing this on themselves and walking around and thereby, you know, violating the law. Were a lot of these things developed for the military and then sort of they spilled out into the general public?
0: Yeah. I mean, no, like absolutely. I mean, this is one of those things where it's easy, you know, after we've all been through years and years of the crypto marketing hype cycle now. And it's kind of easy to roll your eyes at the sort of like, you know, this is going to smash the state and, you know, change the world forever. And, you know, this powerful forces arrayed against it. But I I want us to think about a time when that was kind of true, when there really was like a, a vast material State conspiracy against a particular technology becoming more widely available. And it was, and it, that also definitely informs, like, sort of how cryptocurrency develops. But that is a key part of the history of modern cryptography is that not just the, the United States, lots of different governments. Um, had been, they had been the sort of primary funders of cryptographic research through the 20th century, right? Like they were using it for military purposes and to secure state communications. And it was all just ultra, ultra, ultra secret. Like to the extent that this is a tiny detail, but it's one I find so mind-blowing. So we are probably all familiar with the story of the Enigma machine, the like German military encryption system that a whole group of different people ultimately were able to crack. So they were able to read German military communications. One of the most famous stories in the history of cryptography. Um, Alan Turing is a key figure in it, et cetera, et cetera. That story was so secret when it was happening that after the Second World War, the British government gave a bunch of Enigma machines to Israel so and they were like, here you go. These will keep your communications secret because they no one knew that they had been successfully cracked, and that way the British government could keep like reading Israeli mail and track of what they were doing. It's that level of secrecy? So by the nineteen seventies, as um, cryptography has become increasingly digital, the threat was that, and this is a very I think reasonable and realistic threat was that the government various governments, but let's focus on the U.S., were going to produce encryption standards, which were some level of reasonably secure, but which the government could read, right? Like they would have backdoors into them. And we have a lot of evidence for this actually being done by like the NSA co-developing encryption standards and then giving them to businesses and being like, here, if you want to like, you know, work with American businesses, here's the secure standard that you use and we can read all of it, you know? So, these cryptographers were having to develop, were having to figure out um, how secure cryptography could work under really genuine threat right under like with like their their activities were um, getting them surveilled um, and like put on lists, a lot of people who were doing this work were unable to ever talk to anyone about it. Cryptographers were like these sort of rogue cryptographers, many of whom came to call themselves cypherpunks were like, having to go into, like, libraries and find, like, by chance, the one copy of this document that had not been, like, pulled after they figured out that it was mathematically significant for cryptography. And then, like, share it with other people, reverse engineer breakthroughs and discoveries. And the the sort of story that you raise is one of the kind of most remarkable of these, which was that... Um, Cryptographic algorithms were classified as munitions, as weapons of war, right? Like you needed a foreign export license for them in the same way that you would if you were, you know, like selling tanks or something. So as people were figuring out these sort of cryptographic primitives and fundamental algorithms and things like that, they started doing stuff like getting them printed on t shirts because then you could be like, you know, this t, if I wear this t shirt on an overseas flight, like I am doing the equivalent of like selling crates of AK 47s to somebody. And as you said, most famously, people got um, this extremely laconic version of this algorithm in a programming language called Perl tattooed on themselves. And then they could say, like, my body is classified as a deadly weapon, you know, it's like this military device. So that is also like that tension, I think, is a really good tension for us to bear in mind as we look at how cryptocurrencies developed. Because part of their heritage was this awareness that strong civilian cryptography was seen as posing a genuine threat to the safety and security of the state. And the sense of threat on both sides, that sense of like, this could be Genuinely dangerous to the operations of the government. Um, it could empower, you know, the what the FBI always loved to refer to, like what, what is it? They had, always said the four: terrorists, organized crime, child pornographers, and like drug cartels. I think or something like that. Like cryptography is going to empower all of these, and you see
1: that same rhetoric applied to cryptocurrency. Well, and of course, with Silk Road, I mean, we saw quite a bit of illegal activity, right? But you know, you also talk about these extropians right and you know i mean for some reason it didn't even occur to me that such a concept existed because you know we talk about entropy all the time and i had no idea that entropy had an opposite which is called extropy and so you know these extropians i had no idea that there existed this community right here where i am in berkeley presumably these some of these old folks that i see wandering around these old hippies are extropians with billions of dollars of crypto somewhere tucked away but this was a, like a thriving community and with their own kind of newsletters and everything. So who were these folks and how big did this community get? And does it still exist? I mean, with Hal Finney and Nick Sabo and these guys, I mean, are they just sort of on the circuit now? I mean, how have they gone mainstream? I think some of them have gone kind of more mainstream. But tell me about this group of extropians
0: yeah i mean the extropians were my like i have you know i think it's good for like especially like academics to confess like their biases and i have a lot of affection for the extropians as a movement they they play a big role in the history of crypto that was you know i I don't think has been kind of given enough credit in part because from our like from you know conventional mainstream perspective, they were way out there, you know, (laughs) really extreme in really interesting ways. Um, But they were a lot of the, the, um, you know, most of the key figures in the history of cryptocurrency of what becomes things like Bitcoin and so on all have their roots in the Extropian movement. They're all like they were all on the mailing list. They were all fellow travelers of the Extropians to one extent or another. Some of them were like paid up members of the community. They all were hanging out in the same kind of milieu together. And the extropians are, in my opinion, like the the most significant, least talked about subculture in in like modern technology. Um, lots of people will talk about you know phone freaks in the '70s and you know the sort of development of hackers um, and like all these different groups and subcultures, but the extropians don't get a lot of airtime, and they were hugely influential. There were only ever. I would say, it's hard to get exact numbers, but only ever like a couple thousand people, I think, whoever really even, you know, were in this conversation. And the, the real core of the movement was, I would estimate, in the hundreds, you know. But they get a few thousand people who subscribed to the magazine and, and some people who showed up to events and conventions. But within that group was, first of all, an incredibly influential array of thinkers and writers and influencers who would shape the subsequent tech scene, cryptocurrency, but many other things. But also, they really formulated a lot of what we could think of as the utopian ideology of modern tech, tech, right? Of the modern tech industry. It really has its roots in the ideas and concepts that they brought together. So their premise, as, as you mentioned, was being the opposite of entropy, right? Like they... They had this kind of core group of uh, philosophers and, um, and writers and tech developers, but they were, not, they were kind of a little bit less hands-on and more like kind of you know, theoretical in their approach. Um, people like uh, Max Moore and um, Tio Morrow. I should also say, a key part of being in the Extropian inner circle was that you changed your name to be like more... Affirmative of the future, so like Max Moore is like more of everything, the maximum amount of more of everything, right? T. Is T- T-O. Morrow is tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah, yeah. Simon D. Levy put an exclamation point, so it's Simon <laughs> <laughs> Levy. You know, it's like really, um, it's it's really delightful. Like they really are like deeply committed to this project, but um, but their project was this kind of core group of, of philosophers and and um, theorists was to systematize and propound um, a model of human progress in which our goal um, as, a, as a species is to reverse the theoretically inevitable tide of entropy, right? And by that, they, they mean it in a semi-formal thermodynamic sense, but more in like an informational sense, right? Like to, to create more information, more longevity, more uh, energy in, the, you know, in a like, metaphorical sense, but also in a literal sense, right? Like more space, more time, right? Like more of everything. Um, the goal was to become godlike, you know? And... The ways that the the sort of elements that played a part in that were where we can really kind of see the unusual specificity of their movement, right? Like they wanted to achieve achieve a series of technological breakthroughs that would solve disease, um, that would eliminate want and poverty, that would create sort of, you know, limitless abundance um, and ideally, ultimately, physical immortality. So how do you go about doing that right like it's one thing to have that as a goal but how do you actually kind of go about uh, reversing the universe's tide towards you know aging and senescence and death you do that in a in a way that is partially economic right so and this is where we we really are going to start to see the early like cryptocurrency thread in this beginning to appear you do it by you know by by propounding this philosophy and spreading it to the world, right? This kind of framework that these incredible breakthroughs are possible and we can get there. But you also do it by creating a financial context which incentivizes those breakthroughs. So their approach was one of acceleration through this really idiosyncratic libertarian monetary system, right? So you start creating these like new kinds of money, new kinds of investment vehicles, new kinds of like banks and banking systems, all of which are oriented towards figuring out how to put your foot on the gas of technological innovation. Um, and... In many cases, that is going to involve not to put too fine a point on it doing stuff that is uh, extremely like dicey right you 're going to have to start like finding context where it's like how can we fund medical research that is going to just like just blow past the fda 's approval process how <laughs> are we going to start identifying and pushing for breakthroughs that are going to so radically disrupt existing industries that like every incumbent in the world has a reason to fight them. Well, one of the ways you do that is you kind of develop your own economy. You develop your own like innovation financial economy that can uh, find ways to reward people for choosing the most ambitious possible goals and going after them and, and pursuing these like often very unorthodox approaches to everything from... Uh, moving into space, to human longevity, to the development of artificial intelligence, to nanotechnology, right? Like all of these different areas, they were like, how can we amplify and accelerate all of these? Um, One key thread in their project, which ended up becoming more and more prominent as time went on, was if you really believe in this model, right? This model that like we are about to attain a cascade of breakthroughs that will, uh, you know, make it possible for people who are alive today to live forever, right? To live forever in this, you know, to become these sort of godlike beings traveling through the universe. Then what if you are one of the last people to die before that happens, right? (laughs) You don't want that to happen. So an increasingly significant part of the Extropian project along with all of these other longevity techniques, you know, calorie restriction diets and special injections and exercise and all this other stuff became investment in cryonics, um, right? So having yourself frozen after your death, or as I learned to call it when I started meeting with cryonicists, your metabolic coma, you go into when you are technically deceased, but where you are frozen and could therefore in this future be revived and have your consciousness extracted and put on a computer or whatever. So this extropian model may seem like totally out of left field relative to cryptocurrency, but it actually ends up really informing some of the ideas around how can we create alternative financial systems, alternative currencies and investment vehicles that will act as these motors for radically disruptive innovation. Right, that will like be way more disruptive and out there than like
1: VC, you know. And and of course, you know, you want to have some money when you when you come back to life, right? So, so <laughs>
0: yes, this was. I was going to say this is one of the most amazing parts of it is that they keep having these discussions about effectively how can we build investment vehicles that will like allow us to you know enjoy the wealth and benefits of the future when
1: we are brought back from the dead, right? And I always wondering like, so do you memorize your private key right before you get frozen, and then you got to remember it when you get thought out. I, I was trying to figure out how do you make sure that somebody doesn't run off with all your crypto and stop paying the bills on your freezer. It is a problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at some point you got to trust somebody. You got to trust the janitor isn't going to pull the plug on you while you're in the storage locker. You know, what's interesting about this is that there are some things that have emerged out of these utopian movements. I mean, when we think of every time we dig into a bowl of cereal, right? I mean, the Kellogg's of the world, I mean, they were essentially, Kellogg was running sort of a, I don't know, like a religious cult, right? Back in the day, cereal was sort of a part of the diet within this cult. And then of course, utopian movement, are they going to leave behind? Is it going to be like a furniture shop they leave behind or is it going to be something more significant like cereal? I mean, do you think that they really did enable thoughts and technologies around, you know, new ways of transacting and new ways of storing money that, you know, we should assign credit for the, to these folks? I, I do. I do think so. I think the,
0: um, you know, the, the extropians are, I think they are in the spirit of, And you know, everyone has probably heard this quote. It's a little cliched, but I still really like it by um, Antoine de Saint-Exubery about if I wanted to build a boat, I wouldn't like go around, you know, corralling a bunch of people, get them to cut down trees, you know, and do that. Instead, I would get a bunch of people to dream of the sea. I would get a bunch of people to like, you know, imagine the glory of going to sea. And I think there is something to that, right? Like, even if we want to stay really grounded, you know, we without getting super speculative, you know, a key part of like the cycle of of capital and credit is, you know, promises of the future, right? Is being able to sort of sketch out a vision of what could be that can create investment and you know, create a loop that can allow you to grow some value. So the extropians. They've created a number of or helped to sustain a number of institutions, um, primarily around cryonics, you know which is you know not necessarily at the level of breakfast cereal, but I think what they've done that's more significant is um, really shaped a culture of the future um, that has driven a lot of Not just like attitudes in terms of how we think about Silicon Valley as investment or even as industry, but as a zone of fantasy where people were—and I don't mean fantasy in a pejorative sense, right? As but as a zone where it was possible for people to imagine these profoundly different futures um, that could then like feed back into developing things in the present. So the you know I'll I'll, I'll level with you that I think you know a lot of the. a lot of the concrete existence of cryptocurrencies really uh, failed to deliver the extropian dream, right? Like they became, you know, systems of uh, wild, inflated speculation rather than like motors for disruptive, innovative investment in, you know, breakthrough technologies. Um, but. The notion that we might be on the verge of some extraordinary transformation, and that you could participate in that, right? that you could, like be a part of it, that you could live it in some way, like that has, I think it's hard to overstate how much that has for better, and arguably, for worse, shaped a lot of the way the tech industry currently functions. Um, probably their most concrete. Area of impact, which is still ongoing, um, is that they were really instrumental in what we the discourse of the singularity, right? The kind of the, the imminent breakthrough in AI that will, you know, create this you know, s- string of essentially end the human condition through this like string of of steadily accelerating further breakthroughs and further developments. And Whether or not you think that is plausible, I personally do not think that it's plausible. You can still see the way in which that has had some really um, profound impact on how people approach developing AI, how they think about it, um, the cultural conversation about it. And for that matter, even the extent to which like, I, I personally know people in Palo Alto who are like putting money into like research projects to figure out if we are living in a simulation that is running on an AI because the singularity has already happened, right? Like that, that is the kind of conversation the extropians were having in the 1990s. And the fact that that's a, a part of the culture now, I think is absolutely one of their legacies.
1: Well, last question. I mean, it to me, it's absolutely astonishing that, 15 years after the creation of Bitcoin, we still don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. I don't understand how it's possible to keep something like that secret for as long as we have. I mean, this was a relatively small community of people and they pretty much knew each other and they went to conferences with each other and they had all the mailing lists and so forth. I mean, it's really plausible that the identity and whereabouts of this creator is unknown to the inner circle within this community of extropians yeah that is obviously one of the great questions (laughs) something that like i i'll say two things
0: one is that you know, this is a little bit, what I'm about to do is a little bit of like a, a, a classic cheap academic move. It's a little bit of academic jujitsu, but I think it still has value, which is to say like, you know what's more interesting than Nakamoto's real identity is the fact that this person could be so mysterious or cult, you know, whatever. Like that sort of thing is like, it's a little bit of a kind of like, I don't know who it is. I don't want to speculate, et cetera, kind of move that people do. But I think it is worth, it's worth finding really fascinating that the possibility that you could create you could co-create something like bitcoin which is you know nakamoto was ultimately like a, received a lot of help from people like finney and others kind of building it but the fact that you could create something like that still control an enormous volume of it right so much of the early bitcoin when mining was easy
1: is all in you know nakamoto's wallets where would he be if he were on the Forbes, you know, 400 list? I mean, he'd, be, he'd, he'd have to be up there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The fact that you could do all
0: of that and still remain um, entirely unknown, that is, in some ways, the most complete realization of the fantasies of the cypherpunks of the 1990s, right? Like, that is, in some ways, like, that's what they were hoping for, was a future where it would be possible to do something of this magnitude and to control all of these assets and so on while remaining unknown to the world. So that's kind of the, that's my little jujitsu move. That's answer one is the kind of like more than who it is, isn't it interesting that they can do that, that they can pull it off? My answer part two is that I, um, while the crypto, the sort of proto-cryptocurrency community was quite small, um, it is larger than I think a lot of people realize if you go back into the 1990s and kind of look at how many people were all kind of interested in this idea in loose ways. um, I have my own personal theory as to who Nakamoto is. And if I were to like drop a little breadcrumb, I would say what's really worth looking into is not like the people who were central to the Extropian mailing list. Like, you know, Zabo, for example. Nick Zabo, who people have many times said like, oh, Zabo's Nakamoto. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not. I can really easily demonstrate that. Um, but Zabo was someone who was writing about digital gold like projects as cryptographic projects, was writing about um, using signature chains to authentic- and so on. Like Zabo was obviously right there, but so were a bunch of other people. So my my little breadcrumb is that I think... There were a couple of Commonwealth communities, right, not in the United States, of people who were developing digital gold currencies of the kind that you and I were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, right, where there was like physical gold bars in different places, Um, a number of whom were really interested in if you could develop a cryptographic analog for a DGC. And if I were looking for Nakamoto, I'd look in that group. Because um, they, you know, they went really quiet after the DGC boom kind of wound down in the early 2000s. But a bunch of them are still around. Also, I think pertinent. Um, this is my own personal uh, guess: is that a bunch of them have passed away. You know, because they were like they were already reasonable, you know, reasonable age when they were in their heyday, working in the 90s. Um, but so I think the. If you wanted to look for Nakamoto, I would, I would look at people who were farther back in the history of developing DGCs and then think about why they would write to these mailing lists because people were there who would be able to evaluate these ideas they'd arrived at
1: independently. Well, we didn't even talk about the people who are trying to set up their own independent countries. Yes, oh my God,
0: yeah. It's a whole, whole other story there, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But um, I lied, I have one more question, which is your discipline is a little weird one, right? Like science and tech studies. I mean, should we think of that as a part of a history Department? Should we think of it as part of a, you know, sociology or rhetoric department? Like, whoa. you've got a little community of people who do science and tech studies. Do you think of yourself as a? kind of a community or are you all kind of spread out among all the different various departments? That's
0: a great question. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on, you know, I think, I think the history of STS is fascinating. But basically what it is, in answer to your question, is I think of STS as a as a meeting ground for a bunch of different kinds of folks. But we all, we all can communicate with each other, right? We all have kind of been able to develop like a common language. But some of us, like me, I'm, I've got a historical background, right? Like I I think of myself uh, as a historian of science. Um, And then there's people who are like, yeah, as you say, like sociologists, right? Who like go and do sociology in labs and study kind of how this stuff works. And then there's people who are like anthropologists who are anthropologists of technology, right? And they'll like watch how people use things, how things get developed, how they get, and so on. Um, What STS provided was a space where all of these different Areas which are all adjacent could have like a common center in the Venn diagram to meet up and, and hang out there, you know? And part of what I love this is my little pitch for STS or anyone who's listening. Part of what I love about it is that it gives you like a passport to go and meet and learn from really interesting people in all kinds of different zones, right? So it's what let me be able to write a book like this, where it could be partially about the the history of the science behind the technology and partially about the technology and partially about like the subcultures whose ideas and visions shape the technology.
1: Mm -hmm. Fascinating. All right, so Finn, thank you so much for joining me. The book is called Digital Cash. Check it out. Also, Spam, Shadow History of the Internet. Fantastic, thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.